Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. The movie The Lion in Winter, and there have been several versions of it now, talks about one of the most dysfunctional royal families in all of English history. And it's a very good portrayal of that, but it's just half the story. Henry and his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, are a passionate couple. She's 10 years older, worldly. He's very practical focused. He's the father of English common law. And they have four children who war with each other and with their father throughout their lifetime. They produce sons, one of whom is expected to be a great hero in history. The other is the villain. Actually, they're both pretty villainous, but that's another story. One of them, of course, is Richard the Lionhearted, supposedly a vision of heroism and loyalty. This is a man who was King of England and spent less than six months in the country he ruled. He went on crusade, slaughtered about 2,000 people, and, and had to be ransomed with three years' worth of taxes for his country. Good morning. Today we're going to Go forward a hundred years from last week's class. We're going to spend our time today with three gentlemen. One we don't know at all, we Americans. He's just a name on a list. And it's a shame because we should. He's the father of English common law, which is the basis of our own legal system. The other two we know very well, we think. You tell me at the end of this class whether you really did know those two gentlemen. So today we start in the year 1154. England has a population of two and a half million. London is a thriving town of 25,000. The architecture of the two greatest churches in the country, St. Paul's and Westminster, look very Norman. Ships crowd the Thames, coming and going. They export wool and they bring back rich fabrics, exotic spices, and wine from Gascony and Italy. A wide array of shops crowd the banks of the Thames. And in the shops you can buy everyday items, but but rare items that come off the ships as well. It's already a major port for England. The diversity of the shops is such that one of them is actually a combination restaurant in Delhi. Not what you think of in 1154, is it? The menu offered coarser meats for the poor and venison and various fowl for the more delicate stomachs of the rich. (laughs) You could also buy fish and meat to take home. Cook it as you liked it. While Shire records increasingly list Anglo-Saxon and Danish names, buying land and selling products. At the time of the Doomsday Book, 1086, only two large Anglo-Saxon landowners were left in the country. And that has changed over time. Better horseshoes and smithing techniques develop better farming tools and implements. And they also open up the roads for easier travel and distribution of goods. And so for the first time, you begin to have traders crossing the country, not just to trading centers as they were before, but to isolated hamlets. And so impressive merchant houses are being developed with a lot of land and a lot of money. And their their homes are reflecting their new wealth. In London, Gilbert Beckett is one of the leading merchants. He's also sheriff of London. And he builds the largest home in Cheapside. It's 4,400 square feet. Not bad, even for today. 
But this new prosperity came at a price. After years of civil unrest, famine, hunger, war, two of William, William the Conqueror's sons, William Rufus and Henry I, succeeded him. Henry died without a son. His son died in a, a, a uh, shipwreck, which may have been aided. At his death, his daughter, Matilda, and her cousin Stephen, the son of Henry's sister Adela, both claimed the throne. And civil war broke out. Some of the nobles followed Stephen. A remarkable number followed Matilda. Stephen is crowned, but Matilda will not give up, and the civil war goes on. In fact, she deposes him for seven months in 1141. She might have held the throne, but Matilda had the personality that would make Leona Helmsley look right reasonable. This was a very imperious woman. When Matilda's husband, Geoffrey of Anjou, died, their son Henry joined the struggle. And Henry finally forces Stephen into a truce. Stephen would keep the throne, but Henry would be his heir. And this is Henry II. Matilda's son. Henry came to the throne on 25 October 1154. He's the first and one of the best of 13 Plantagenet kings who rule England for 300 years. Since the family came from Anjou, they should be called the Angevins, which they are. But the name we know best came from a sprig of broom that Geoffrey of Anjou carried in his hat. That was kind of his personal symbol. The Latin name for broom is Planta Genesta. And so the name for the family came from that sprig of, of broom, Plantagenet. The Plantagenets were larger than life, sheer star quality. They were addicted to power. Most were charming, compelling, charismatic, not attractive. Only a few of them are truly handsome. Energetic, everything they do, they do 100%. Very effective. Single-minded past reason, chillingly ruthless, and with wild, unpredictable rages. They're tough people to be around. Historian Sama Shama, Simon Shama sums them up very well. He says everything that their abilities created, their passions destroyed. The first Plantagenet king was born at Le Mans on 5 March 1133. His mother, as I said, was Matilda, the daughter of Henry I. His father was born Count of Anjou. In the wars with Stephen, he takes Normandy and then Maine from Stephen. So when he dies in 1151, the family owns about three-fifths of all of the coastal lands of France. Now, we can't tell from this. This is uh, on his tomb, Henry's tomb. But he had gray eyes, a florid, freckled complexion, and bright red hair. He was stocky and athletic. He was the first well-educated king since the Norman invasion. He spoke English, several French dialects, Latin, and Welsh. He studied law and sat as a judge on more than one case. Admirers said he never forgot anything, including a face. Not a bad trait for a king. He dressed plainly and preferred informality. He didn't wear his, his crown very often. He also had a paunch, a pot belly, and he's very sensitive about that pot belly. In fact, he obsesses over his diet and exercise. And anybody around him diets and exercises with him, whether they want to or not. We've all had friends like that, right? It's just not safe to be around them when they're dieting. One thing friend and foe noted, though, was his incredible restlessness and energy. He would have been on double doses of Ritalin today. Henry married Eleanor of Aquitaine when he was 19 in 1153. 
She was 10, maybe 11 years older than he was. The dark-eyed and beautiful Eleanor was the former queen of France. She married Louis VII of France when she was 15 in 1137. In 1152, Louis asked to have the marriage annulled, officially because of consanguinity. They were remote cousins, but really because Eleanor had only had two daughters, something women have been blamed for for a long time. Eleanor does not take it lying down. Eleanor announces loudly it's not her fault they only have two children. Louis is more monk than king, like Edward the Confessor, and she makes sure everybody knows it. <laughs> Eleanor was remarkable for her age, and any age, really. She wrote music, sought words and lyrics. She joined Louis on a crusade. She and her ladies rode war horses and went armed. Now, there's no record that they fought in any battles, maybe a skirmish. The knights probably were kind of irritated to have them along because they had to protect them. But they went through all the hardships. Eleanor was witty, talented, and ambitious, strong-minded, and opinionated, and had no problem with telling you what her opinion was, king, pope, knight, or servant. But Eleanor will grow in time. The stories we have of her as a young girl are of a light-skirted, light-minded person. But in time, she learns and becomes politically savvy. One contemporary described her as having made up for an ill-spent youth by a wise and benevolent old age. Eight months after the Pope annuls her marriage to Louis, Henry and Eleanor are married. Eleanor was cultured, older, experienced. Henry was far less cultured and not very sympathetic with the court of love and chivalry that she set up at her capital, Poitiers. But opposites do attract. And these two were very attracted to each other. Both are passionate. Both are involved in the world around them. Eleanor and Henry have eight children, five sons, three daughters. So they spent quite a bit of time together when their first years of their marriage. However, despite that, Henry has a succession of mistresses, often public, and at least one in Eleanor's own court. He will, he will have 12 illegitimate children, and he brings one of the sons to Eleanor to raise. And the evidence is she did raise him and was quite fond of him. But increasing time apart, all those mistresses and anger in time will turn to revenge and will split them apart. But that's in the future. The time we're talking about now, they're newlyweds. They were crowned in Westminster Abbey on 7 December, 1154. The coronation oath remained unchanged from the one that Edward the Confessor made. And there are four main parts. The king is charged with protecting the church, preserving the land, do justice, suppress evil laws and customs. Henry is the first king since the Anglo-Saxons that will actually honor that oath, extend English territory, and protect English rights. He is an anomaly after a large number of less than involved English kings. Henry inherited, conquered, or married into huge amounts of land. He is actually the ruler of the largest empire of his day. In addition to England, he ruled every single province of France on the Atlantic coast. From Flanders to the Pyrenees was his. Anjou, Aquitaine, Normandy, Maine, Bologna, all belonged to Henry. In fact, he held more land in modern France than the King of France did. He only had this little strip. Now, there's no sense of nationalities anywhere 
It's not like Henry looks at his empire and says, oh, I'm going to build this Franco-English empire. Nobody really has a sense of, of, of nationality. Instead, he rules each within the confines of their own language, their own culture, and their own legal system. Now, he tries to change those, but each one is, is really ruled independently. And like the Norman kings before him, and his son Richard after him, Henry does not consider England home. Home was Anjou and Aquitaine. They're still more French than English. Henry spent 21 of his 34 years on the continent and not in England. But in all fairness, England was safer than his French possessions. The French king, the other counts and nobles of the, of the provinces around him all lusted after his French possessions. It was a little harder to get over the sea and take England. And so they were more vulnerable than England was, and so he spends more time there. Peter Dubois, one of his courtiers, courtiers, described what it was like to travel with King Henry, knowing that he has to stay in the road all the time. Now, you remember William the Conqueror last week. We talked about how he handled his court. Well, here's how Peter Dubois describes it. You may be sure that the king will leave the place bright and early and upset everyone's calculations in his haste. If he indicated what his route was to be, he was sure to change it to another place where there may be a single house and no food for anyone else. And I believe our plight added to the king's pleasure. It wasn't easy to be in a court in those days. Because Henry has to travel so much between one possession and the other, he actually averaged 20 to 30 miles a day in the saddle. Now, all that energy and all of that uh, restlessness, he would not even often get down on the travels to eat a meal. And so he'd sit in the saddle to eat, or at the most, at the side of the road. So again, we're not talking about the kind of courts that we expect where everybody feasts and there's lots of music and all this kind. These people are gypsies traveling from place to place. It's not yet the medieval times that the movies show us. That's actually much later. In 1155, the new pope is Adrian IV. He is the first English pope, the only English pope. His name is Nicholas at birth. His name was Nicholas Breakspear. One of the first things he does is give Henry control of all of Britain, Wales, Ireland, and Scotland, in addition to England. Now, the new pope does not happen to talk to the people of Ireland, Wales, and Scotland to see if they agreed. He just kind of said, Henry, as in my power as pope, you now have rulership over these countries. Now, that's easier to say than to do. You know, I can say to you, Reva, you have control of the moon tomorrow, but if you can't actually take the moon, it isn't going to happen. And that's exactly what was happening with Henry. But he does use the papal bull very, very wisely, the document that Adrian sends him. And using that, he negotiates with Scotland's King Malcolm IV to say, okay, here's the deal. I won't, I won't go to war with you to take Scotland from you, since it's mine, according to the pope. But instead... To keep me from doing that, you give me back Cumbria and Northumberland. Those are the lands on the, the narrow neck connecting the base of England to Scotland. And Henry's predecessors had lost that land to the Scottish kings. So Henry's very smart. He says, okay, I have the right to come and, and, and invade you, declare war on you, and take your whole country. But instead, let's compromise. You just give me back all the lands that you have taken, and I won't take away the rest of Scotland with the, with the Pope's help. And so he, he adds about a third of English land back into his reign, his realm. In 1158, Henry betrothes his oldest son, also Henry, to King Louis's daughter, Margaret, by his second wife, not by Eleanor. Her dowry was to be land and castles claimed by both France and Normandy. Now, Louis is no fan of Henry's. Henry's married to his ex-wife. You know people have trouble with that, you know, being friends with your ex's spouse. But he agrees to this 
thinking he has a whole lot of time ahead of him. Margaret's only six months old. Her fiancé is a, a, a old, four years old. And so he figures he has a lot of time. He can work something else out or we'll see what happens. However, the next year, there's a, a new election for Pope, and it's not a good one. It's, very, it's disputed, and people are pulling apart, almost going to war over which man should be Pope. And so Henry agrees to accept Alexander III as the rightful Pope. In return for the Pope's legates marrying the two children. Now, a little Margaret probably can't say the word husband, but she has one. <laughs> Henry was very egalitarian, especially for that day. He founded the first university at Oxford in 1164. His closest advisor was a London merchant's son, in fact, Gilbert Beckett's son, Thomas. Thomas Beckett was Henry's chancellor and never far from Henry's side. In those days, the chancellor was a combination of personal chaplain, secretary, keeper of the official records, and arch archivist. Beckett was 13 years older than Henry, quieter, self-contained, and a master of administrative detail, church doctrine, and church economics. Thomas Beckett was a monk. He was not a priest. He was also strangely dressed for a monk. He wore the finest, most colorful clothes he could come up with. Lots of jewels, lots of rich materials. You had to wonder where he got the money as a poor monk to buy all that stuff. Of course, he had that wealthy dad. But what Beckett also did have was the stamina to keep up with Henry, and that was necessary to be in his household. He adapted also to Henry's very changeable nature. One minute warm, informal friend, the next coldly detached, and the next one rattling the windows with rage. It was never boring around Henry. And with Beckett's eager support, Henry starts taking power from the baronial courts, the law courts and introducing royal courts. In fact, for the first time, England has a standard legal system in the sense that there are permanent courts you can go to. One is at Canterbury, one is at Westminster, and then other courts travel periodically through the shires. And so, for the first time, we have not just local barons to go to, but we have the king's representatives with the king's power and the king's law coming to the people. He formalizes the Danish 12-man jury system. And any free man, any free man, could appeal the local, local lord's ruling. You could say, okay, I don't like that, just like today, and I'm going to appeal to the royal court. Or you could say, I want to be tried at the royal court and not by the local court. This is a revolutionary idea, new to the English people, new to anybody at this time. Now, these laws did not apply to serfs. Serfs are still, for all practical purposes, the slaves of the lords on the land. But Henry works toward a common law throughout England, what he called the laws and customs of the realm. The barons comply reluctantly. The merchants and the freemen, especially those who have to have to travel from one shire to another, love it. Now there's one law everywhere. But the church is a problem. Now Henry does not want to subjugate the church, but he thinks the church's place is within the realm and under those laws and customs. The church should be subject to the realm's laws. And the church has been assuming powers that the Norman kings held. And so there's some friction growing between Henry and the church. The Norman kings had appointed the bishops. And they claimed that right because, they said, 
Kings are anointed by God, and therefore that gave them the right to appoint God's representatives. Made sense to them. Recent popes said only they and their archbishops had the right to appoint bishops. For the first time, popes are announcing that they are the supreme power over Christendom. That is not something the earlier popes claimed. They allowed, they said, archbishops to crown kings as proof that the kings were subject to the church and not the masters of it. The church supported kings only so long as the kings acknowledged the church's independence. The church said the king's power ended at the church door. And Henry and the Plantagenets who followed them, him say no. A king is totally in control of everything within his realm. It's not yet the divine right of kings. He doesn't go that far. That comes later and we'll bring down the Stuarts. But it is the beginning of the argument about the relationship of church and state. At what point do they have to accommodate the other? In Henry's realm, the basic question is, is the church part of the realm or separate from it? Keep this in mind, because really that is the heart still of our argument over, debate over, the relationship of church and state. It will be the heart of the rebellions in classes six and seven. It also creates a problem in the colonies of Virginia and Maryland 500 years later. It doesn't go away, as we know. But at least for now, in Henry's time, the real questions are a little more prosaic. Henry wants one law that applies seamlessly to all of his people, clergy and non-clergy. There are two serious issues where Henry and the Pope cannot seem to agree. Do, do bishops have the right and the authority to excommunicate royal officials without first talking it over with the king? Do you need the king's permission and approval to excommunicate the king's officials? The second issue is, could the king's court judge the clergy? And if so, does the clergy have the right to appeal to the pope? Who has authority over the law and over excommunication? In 1161, the Archbishop of Canterbury dies. Henry invokes the historical precedent to appoint the Archbishop and decides to make the Archbishop his man. He's going to settle these thorny issues, these political issues, by putting his man in power. Does that sound something like our selection of a Supreme Court judge today? <laughs> Henry appoints Thomas Becket, the new Archbishop of Canterbury. He obviously thought Thomas was his man and would do a good job of supporting his policies. After all, Thomas al always had before. So what would be different? Becket almost immediately disagrees with Henry. Henry sends out legislation to say, I'm going to tax the clergy, tax the church. And Becket comes back and says, no, you don't have that right. The king sends out legislation to say, clergy are subject to my royal courts. And Becket comes back and says, no. Benefit of church clergy says that all clergymen stay in religious courts. They are not subject to civil courts. Henry's outraged. Rapists, thieves, and murderers are executed or mutilated in royal courts. If they, if they go before a church court, only two things will happen to them. One, they'll be defrocked, they'll lose their office, or two, they'll be subject to penance. It's hardly the same thing. The unequaled 
sentences violated Henry's view of common law, applying to everyone equally. They continue to argue. Beckett says you cannot, in the civil courts, rehear what the clerical courts have already heard. That interferes with the independence of the church. And then he goes on to say, no clergyman under any circumstances should ever be subject to the death penalty, even for treason. That's not a real good thing to say to a king. Now, face to face with Henry during a meeting in January 1164 when they're trying to work this out, Beckett changes his mind. He says, you're right, Henry. Clergy should be subject to the law. Four days later, he's home. Henry's not there. He sends out a written document to all of his churches saying, no, he's changed his mind. Clergy are not subject to civil jurisdiction. The problem is Beckett can't seem to handle confrontation with Henry. When he's face to face with Henry, he's a whole lot less adamant than he is when he's away. And unfortunately, he, he will say one thing to Henry and something else to his parishioners. Some of his bishops come back and say, that's not what you told Henry. They were there too. And so he threatens Henry in England with interdiction, closing the church doors, if Henry persists in his ideas. Now, he knows he's gone too far. And so he tries to leave the country without Henry's permission. He stopped before he can get on a ship. He's not arrested. Let's just say he's under protective custody when he's taken back home. In October... 1164, Henry charges Becket with improper use of funds while he's chancellor, possible misconduct in a church land dispute, and treason. Becket shows up in full regalia as a defender of the faith. All of the robes that you see, usually just on the statues and stuff, he's hauling this huge, heavy, heavy, heavy cross of St. Michael that normally two or three people carry. So he's coming in, get the image. Okay, so he comes in to court dressed like this. Well, his bishops are horrified. They try to stop him. This is way too theatrical. This is not going to be a good thing. There's a little bit of a tussle, and Beckett goes in dressed that way anyway. His bishops are horrified. This theatric... Theatrical performance he's putting on, his inconsistency, is really creating a very bad situation with the king. And they have to live with the king. Gilbert Foliot, the Bishop of, of London, is so disgusted, he says of Becket, an ass he always was and an ass he'll always be. Just a little bit of frustration going on here. Yeah. The trial becomes a loud, yelling, mudslinging battle. Henry's not there. And Beckett's always louder when, when Henry's not there. Beckett is convicted of all three charges. But he is archbishop, so people aren't quite sure what to do after they've, they've said he's guilty. And so Beckett storms out of the building and is smuggled by friends to France before anything else can happen. Now, once Beckett is in France, he expects the Pope, Alexander, to support him. He's a churchman, and Alexander has similar problems. Alexander now has, and now is a pope in exile because the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, had exiled him from Rome over that disputed papal election. And so Beckett thinks, well, we've got common cause. He'll, he'll excommunicate everybody. I'll be okay. But what Beckett overlooked was Alexander's position. He is a pope in exile. He is totally dependent on the funding of two kings, the king of France and the king of England. Alexander cannot afford to support Becket against King Henry II. So Becket sets up a government in exile, loudly proclaiming that he is righteous and innocent and everybody else is wrong. Henry, on the other hand, is not being very reasonable either. 
He arrests all of Beckett's followers, seizes their property, even threatens that anybody who says anything nice about Beckett is going to be exiled. These are not two, two grown-up men going at each other. The English bishops are caught between the two of them. And interestingly enough, they blame Beckett. They said it, his vanity and ego destroyed a working relationship with the king. He created this problem, made it harder for them to do their job, and then hightailed it out of the country, leaving them to deal with the aftermath. So you'd think Beckett would at least cool down now, right? He excommunicated everybody in England that he thought was responsible for the trouble. Now, he does not excommunicate Henry. He does leave Henry off the list. Pope Alexander jumps into the fray. Beckett's out of control. Henry is not known for being a reasonable man, and he's got a lot of funding at stake. And so he sends representatives to both men trying to work out a compromise. Alexander knew Henry was obsessed with his own succession, and he wanted to crown his son, his oldest son, Henry the Younger, before he died. You know, Henry II came to the throne after this civil war, and he was rather traumatized by that. He did not want his sons to face the same problem. And so he thinks if he crowns his son while he's still alive, then the transition will be very easy. It is a ceremonial crowning only. He does not intend for the younger Henry to have any power. He's not going to give up any of the, of, of the prerogatives of, of rule, but he will have the, the title and he will have a crown. For two years, papal legates wandered from Becket to Henry, from Henry to Becket, trying to work out a compromise. A conciliation meeting failed when Becket deviated from the agreed-upon script. He will not compromise. He then excommunicated the Bishop of London and the Archbishop of York. With everybody in exile or excommunicated, church meetings must have been very short. It's very hard to talk long just to yourself. Henry gets tired of waiting, and so he has the excommunicated Bishop of York crown his son. Later that summer, June, July 1170, there's one more reconciliation meeting between Becket and Henry. It initially goes well. Henry's kind of sad. They have a lot of history. This has not, not been fun. He agrees to pardon all of Becket's followers. But when he asks Becket to lift the excommunications, Beckett refused. It's not the same thing. Beckett is allowed to return to England. He not only doesn't raise or relieve the excommunications he's already put in place, he adds to them all the clergy who supported Henry are now excommunicated. The newly excommunicated bishops go straight to Henry to tell him what's happened. Now, some historians have Henry saying, Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? Other historians have him say something that would have been even more devastating for his court. And you see various versions of it. The one I like best is, what miserable drones and traitors have I nourished who allow their Lord to be treated with such contempt by a low-born cleric? If you were in his court, that would cut pretty hard, wouldn't it? Four knights immediately leave and go to Canterbury to confront Becket. They don't intend to kill him. They intend to arrest him and bring him back to answer to Henry. Beckett could have defused the situation. He could have actually even gone with them. He could have said, guys, let's talk this over. Instead, it's Beckett, and he's confrontational. The knights go away. Beckett had time to leave. He could have escaped. He does not. Instead, he goes to the church by himself. He has four bodyguards at this time. He leaves his bodyguards behind. He goes to the church alone, leaves the church doors open. He's inviting trouble, is what he's doing. 
Maybe there's a martyr complex. I don't know. The Knights accost him alone in the church. Again, it's confrontational. And the Knights kill him rather bloodily. It's, it's, it's seen there are people in the church. There are other monks and priests in the church. It's not a secret. He dies in Canterbury Cathedral on 29 December 1170. When his monks prepare his body for burial, they discover Becket was mortifying himself. He wore a goat hair shirt against his skin. It was crawling with maggots and lice. Becket is canonized in 1173. His ideas of church and state will continue and become an important motivating factor in the Protestant Reformation. The four knights accept penance. They're excommunicated and sent on crusade. Three will die in the crusade. Now you may ask, why did Becket change? Here he is, Henry's loyal friend and supporter, and suddenly he becomes this, the ultimate churchman. We don't know. We can only speculate. And there are a number of possibilities that people talk about. One is that he was always a fanatic, but he knew living side by side with Henry, he wouldn't survive if he actually told him what he thought. Others say, much like Bishop Foliot would, I think, that he was an actor always, and whatever role he played, he played to the hilt. When he's Henry's friend, he's 100% Henry's friend. He dresses, he acts, he talks. When he becomes an archbishop, he's going to be the ultimate archbishop. It's just his nature to be 100% whatever he is at the time. He could also have been book smart and people stupid. We've all known people like that who are extremely intelligent, well-educated, and can't read their next-door neighbor, never, never mind their wives. And it's, it's obviously apparent that Becket misread Henry on multiple occasions. He was not good at reading people, and that might have been part of the issue. The other one is maybe the power went to his head. I'm archbishop. I don't have to do anything except what I want. We will never really know. It's all speculation. It's interesting, though, with a lot of the novels and stories about Becket that he, has, he comes down as the hero when, in fact, he is a prime player in his own downfall but time does strange things. Henry accepts the blame and makes extreme penance for Becket's death. However, in time, Henry gets almost everything he wanted. Henry invades and takes Northern Ireland in 1171. In 1177, he names Prince John, his youngest son, the King of Ireland. Now, he only owns a little bit of Ireland, so that was a little bit of hubris going on there. It's only an honorary title. He wanted his youngest son to have a title. In 1181, he commissioned the nation's first law book. Line for line and letter for letter, all the laws and the precedents in effect. This is an unprecedented, if I can use that without being a pun, book and guidance for all of those courts that he has operating now in England. Becket's murder stained Henry's historical reputation. It did not hurt him at the time. It takes his sons to do that. If you've seen uh, either version of the movie A Lion in Winter, um, it's not completely historically accurate, but it does a pretty good job of showing you the, the in, inner workings of a very dysfunctional family. They are among the most dysfunctional of all the British royal families. Henry's third son, Geoffrey, once wrote his father, it is our nature that none of us should love the other, but that ever brother should strive against brother and son against father. That pretty much sums up how they operated with one another. Henry's final years are one dispute after another with his sons. Henry the Younger starts it by demanding power. He's the one that's been crowned. Now he goes to his father and says, I want the power, not just the titles, of being a co-king, so to speak. His father refuses. He's not given up any power. And so, in 1173, Henry's wife, Eleanor, and his three oldest sons go to war with Henry. They rebel against their king and father. 
The cause was supposedly King Henry's intention to take three castles from Henry the Younger to give to his younger son and favorite, John. King Henry won the war, but it's bitter and it's bloody. And he chiefly blames Eleanor. He forgives the sons. He does not forgive Eleanor. He imprisons Eleanor for the next 13 years. You've heard of house arrest. Eleanor's under permanent castle arrest. But that same year, just within a few months, his oldest son, Henry the Younger, dies of a fever. King Henry reallocated his empire. His second son, Richard, is now his heir. And he was to have Normandy, Anjou, and England when Henry died. The next son, Geoffrey, was to get Brittany. And his youngest son, who had had no land to that day, John, was to get Aquitaine. But Richard refused to give it up. That was his. And they go back to war. The third son, Geoffrey, died in a tournament in Paris in August 1186. A war horse tramples them to death. He leaves two small children, babies, Arthur and Eleanor. Keep those names in mind. They come back. Not literally. Richard allied with his father's enemy, King Philippe of France, and forces his father to terms on 4 July 1189. Henry asks Richard to give him a list of the names of all his nobles who supported Richard. At the top of the list is the name of his son, John. His favorite son turned on him at the last. He's devastated. Henry died of a massive hemorrhage two days later, cursing his sons. He was 56. Only one of his illegitimate sons was with him when he died. The rest, he said, were the real bastards. Despite Becket and his sons, Henry is considered one of the best of the kings. He left a legacy of law and order. He is the founder of English common law. Eleanor lives another 15 years, dying at 82. She's the oldest English queen consort until the 20th century. She continued to exert control, influence, power, whatever you want to say, over her sons and their reigns until she dies. Two of Henry's sons will wear the crown after him, first Richard and then John. We know them, we know their names far better than we know their father. Neither of them are near the king he was. And between them, they will lose almost all the land that he gained for them. Henry's successor was Richard. Richard is the second surviving son. Henry the Younger died, as you recall. Richard was described as tall and handsome, his hair between red and reddish blonde. He spent most of his childhood at his mother's court at Poitiers in, in uh, Aquitaine. He's very much his mother's son with his love of color and ceremony. He was always her favorite. This is from his tomb. He spoke two French dialects and Latin. He did not speak English. He does not learn English. He was a skilled poet and musician. He even conducted his own chapel choir. And yes, he was almost certainly bisexual. He was physically strong and shrewd, and his absolute passion was fighting, tournaments, and war. He was nicknamed, nicknamed Richard Coeur de Lyon. Richard the Lionhearted, for his reckless bravery. And we've lost the real Richard in all the stories that have been told about him. And they're good stories, but you really don't need them. Richard's life was colorful enough without the stories. And that's often true of the historical characters that are covered up by the stories that are written afterwards. In 1169, Richard became betrothed to Alice, the daughter of Louis VII. She was seven. King Henry II had already decided which son was to inherit which part of his empire. 
As I mentioned to you, Henry gave his son some of the income from the lands, but none of the power. And so in 1173, his three oldest sons start a revolution, a rebellion against their father. Eleanor supported her sons with money, with men, and with advice. The 16-year-old Richard leads troops in the field against his father. He's defeated and must beg for pardon. Dad pardons him and the other two, but as we know, he does not pardon Eleanor. And so Richard turns his attention to his lands of Aquitaine. There's some warfare going on there. Several of his barons are misbehaving and fighting with each other. And so the 16-year-old goes in to handle it. And he actually does a good job, but then it's warfare. And Richard loves that. He takes them on successfully. In 1183, Henry the Younger dies. Richard is now heir. Henry wants to reallocate his empire. He wants Richard to give Aquitaine to the youngest, John, and Richard refuses. He spent too much time and effort settling that problem. He is not giving up Aquitaine. And Eleanor also recommended that Richard not give it up. She told Richard that John could not be trusted to take good care of Aquitaine, and that's her home. And so Richard and joins with King Philippe of France, and it turns into a major war against Henry. And they defeat the sick and, and wounded Henry on 4 July. Two days later, Richard becomes king. Richard immediately sends word to free his mother. She's been under castle arrest all this time. Eleanor released herself. So he gets word, thanks, but I already took care of that. This is not a shy and retiring woman. As soon as she heard Henry was dead, she figured she could... She could uh, Sign for her own recognizance, as we might say today. On 3 September 1189, Richard was crowned at Westminster. Mom, who does speak English, has become his spokeswoman and actually set up the coronation for Richard, who is a stranger to England and doesn't speak the language. His coronation is marred by the first of several bloody and vicious attacks on the Jewish population. The word Holocaust is used for the first time in history for these attacks. Henry II had protected them. They were a, a foundation of his country, he thought, and so he protected them. But Catholic fanaticism had been growing throughout Europe. Anyone who deviated even the least bit from the, from the tenets of the church was open for attack, and the Jewish population deviated a lot, and so they become a target. Now, to his good name, Richard does try to protect the Jews. The problem is he spends so little time in England, he's never there when the attacks occur. Two years earlier, in 1187, the great Saladin of Egypt had attacked and taken Jerusalem back, and the Pope called for a third crusade. Richard immediately announces he's going on crusade. Now, this is not a religious man, but he loves war, he loves glory. What could be better? So he announces at his coronation, we're going on crusade. Now, he doesn't love England. England is no more than a source of funding for him. He needs money for a crusade. The first thing he does is sell all rights to Scotland to King William the Lion for 10,000 marks. That's 6,700 pounds. It's the infamous quit claim of Canterbury. He thinks so little of England, he sells part of it away and cheaply. That's not even much money. He imme immediately leaves for France. He still needs money. He needs troops. He will not return to England for four years. On his mother's advice, Richard took steps to keep his father's two favorite sons, John and, and his illegitimate son, Geoffrey, from seizing the throne while he's gone. He gives John huge tracts of land. He makes his illegitimate half-brother, Geoffrey, the Archbishop of York. He immediately banishes both of them for three years. 
He thinks he'll be back before then. Richard put William Longchamp, Bishop of Ely, in charge of the country. Longchamp was an extremely competent commoner. He's also arrogant, quick-tempered, and so tactless, he made enemies when he, on first meeting him. He could insult you with a handshake. So immediately, he irritates everybody in sight. And Richard makes another mistake. He allows John, he changes his mind on John's banishment, and he allows John to come home. The infuriated barons turn to John. Got to tell somebody how badly Longchamp is doing. And so for the next year, John has an absolutely wonderful time being the head of the loyal but outraged opposition. But in 1191, half-brother Geoffrey decides he can come home too. Now, Richard didn't say he'd come home, but John's home, so why can't I? He does. He returns to England, and Longchamp arrests him in a priory. Well, John gets the bishops and the barons upset about this and calls Longchamp to a court to an answer for arresting Geoffrey without really permission from anybody. Longchamp refuses to attend. He won't come. The bishops excommunicate him, and he flees the country. A very interesting thing happens. This is 1191, ladies and gentlemen. The council of bishops and barons make John regent by the common deliberation of the king's vassals. The people, the representatives of the people, decide who will be regent. They are reaching back to the Witan, the Anglo-Saxon balance on the king. Now, they're smart enough that John is the regent, but they don't give him much of the power. And so it's a very interesting balance of power while Richard is gone. Meanwhile, Richard is in Sicily. He and King Philippe of France spend the winter in Sicily before they go on crusade. They quarrel over the fact that Richard has not yet married Philippe's sister Alice, and they've been engaged 22 years. It is more than time. The problem is Alice had been one of King Henry's mistresses. Richard is not going to marry her. In fact, Alice is in jail in, under castle arrest. Eleanor arrested her when Henry died. That was one of the mistresses too close to home. She didn't like that. Eleanor arrives in Sicily unexpectedly with another bride for Richard, Berengaria of Navarre part of Spain. Outraged and humiliated, Philippe sails for the Holy Land without Richard. Now Richard, that charmer, says, I have no time for marriage now. Berengaria can come with him, she can go on crusade with him, and maybe he'll have time to marry her later. She goes. Her ship goes aground in a storm on Cyprus. And she's almost captive, made captive of the ruler of Cyprus. Well, Richard, who never misses an opportunity to go to war, immediately attacks Cyprus. And he takes it. And then sells it the next day to the exiled king of Jerusalem, Guy de Lusignan. And I guess he had some extra time on his hands. He married Berengaria. After the marriage, Eleanor releases Alice, and Alice returns to France. Richard and Berengaria have no children, and he only has one illegitimate child that we know of. Richard arrived at Acre in June 1191. His forces tipped the balance in the two-year-old siege. The city surrenders in five weeks. It was one of the few successes in 200 years of crusading. But when Richard thought the Arabs were deliberately delaying, he marches 2,700 hostages in front of the city and kills every single one of them. This is just one of the reasons why the word crusade is so hot for the Arabs. It is not glorious from their view. It's a series of bloody invasions and some pretty horrific 
terrorism associated with it. Richard and his allies do secure Acre and a strip of land along the coast. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.